0: Welcome to Bringing Truth to Life. My name is Henry Clay, and we hope you enjoy this series of messages on the Reformed faith. Welcome to Lightning in the Fog. Our our title is Lightning in the Fog, The Heartbeat and Hurdles of the Reformed Faith. And tonight we want to talk about terminology. What does Reformed mean? Now, I became a Christian in a Presbyterian church when I was 17 years old. So this goes way back for me, you know, it's not as though I've just come around the last five years. That doesn't mean I know much, but if longevity gets you anything, I've been around 30-something years around the the type of church that sort of specializes in what they call Reformed theology. And it's been something that... Sometimes I have, feel like I have a better idea of what it means and sometimes I don't. But it's, it, just as far as terminology, the term Reformed isn't a slam-dunk term. that you, just, every, you say it and everybody says, oh yeah, like fried egg or something like that. I mean, nobody ever comes up and you says, would you explain to me again what a fried egg is? Everybody knows what a fried egg is. But when you say Reformed theology, even if they've gone to this kind of a church their whole life and they hear that word you know, so many times in so many settings, and still, after years go by, they say, if their child asks, to know, Dad, what is Reformed theology? It's like, oh my, let's see, now how am I going to answer this? So, whereas if it was a fried egg, you'd have it right away. And so I wanted to try to uh, use, give an illustration tonight that um, it, using that cup that you just were working on. So here we have your cup that you first made. Nice, formed... Why do people make cups? Are they nice just because they're paperweights or things to throw at people? What's the primary purpose of a cup? Okay, to hold a liquid so that you can drink, so that you can satisfy your thirst. Okay, you don't need a cup for a steak. You know, you would have to kind of roll up a steak and shove it in there, and then once it's in there all rolled up, you'd have trouble cutting it, and it's not, not good for steaks. But it's very good for beverages, you know, and so you've got, you make your cup. Then, so that's formation, the making of the cup. Then if you're mean to your cup, you break it, or if it's a soft thing, you smush it or run over it, like your child's tippy cup, you know, that's got the little thing on it, and you back the van over it, and now it's all mashed. And so it may have a hole in it. it, it, It at least won't hold as much as it used to and it may leak out the liquid, so it no longer works like it was supposed to. So you have formation, you have deformation, deforming it, and then you have, if if it's a type of material that you could reform, like our Play-Doh, you can remake it again or you can reform it. That is what reformed means in this context of theology. So now you see you have a handy-dandy thing that even to a child you can explain. When they say, Mom, uh, what does reformed theology mean? You say, well, let's get some Play-Doh. Okay, now let's look at this in terms of church history and see how that works out. In the first four or five hundred years, Christianity was in formation. That is when the time when the apostles wrote the scriptures. And then in the next hundred, two hundred years, they finalized what's known as the canon. What's the canon? It's the which books should be included in the Bible as Holy Scripture, and their main criteria on that was can we trace it to apostolic origin? Do we know that this really comes from eyewitnesses of Jesus Christ? And so that was all part of formation, and then they had began having the church councils because once they'd established the canon and people studied it, there were certain things that were more difficult to figure out for people, like what's the nature of the Trinity? What's the nature of the incarnation of Jesus? Was He a man who was real spiritual? Or was He God who appeared like He was a man, but He wasn't really a man? Or was He a man and Jesus? And then this Christ Spirit comes onto Him, like some believe, taught back around here. And then at the crucifixion, since God can't die, Christ left Jesus, and just Jesus died. Of course, he didn't rise either. But the Spirit, you know, didn't rise because he didn't die, but he's still alive. You know, they they came up with all these things, you know. So, you remember on every Sunday we say the Apostles' Creed, but on special Sundays we say a different creed. Do you remember what the name of that different creed is? The Nicene Creed. And that creed spells out a number of the things that were doctrinal difficulties, like the nature of the Trinity, the nature of... Uh, the incarnation of Jesus. But all that to say that in these first four or five hundred years, it was the formation of the church as we know it today. Then, in the Middle Ages, and people from, uh, that are staunch Catholics would maybe disagree with us on a couple of points and, you know, none of us are right in everything we say and we don't mean any harm, but it, even Catholics would say the, the Middle Ages didn't go that well. There were, there were things that that were not good. And uh, so much so that by the time of the 1400s, there were popes that had maybe 30 illegitimate children and would contract uh, hired killers to wipe out people and stuff like that, you know, bad witness for the church. And there was a time of deformation where Christianity was kind of really, it was early on the way out. I mean, if, if it kept up like that, It was just a matter of time before it it would collapse under its own hideous weight because they had so far departed from the Scripture and so far departed from the Gospel. And then in the 1500s, the Reformation began, and it was a time of reforming, like with your cup, reforming, trying to reform Christianity according to its original design. Isn't that a simple way to look at it? Maybe not be right, but I I think it's right. (laughs) That's what I've understood it to be. Now let's look at a couple of the details of that. Uh, With formation, the main things under formation were the the canon of the Bible and the creeds. And the kind of things that were going on that deformed the church were teaching that salvation was by works or by being baptized or by observing the sacraments. The veneration of Mary and the saints, so less and less praying to Jesus because he was sort of scary, so you know, mom always has an inside track, and so we'll talk to Mary and and go through Mary to Jesus, and she'd put pressure on Jesus, and and she'll get it done. But it's just not biblical. We love Mary, but, you know, we don't think that's the right way to handle prayer. The church was rich. It was powerful. It was corrupt. Uh, It was very involved in political matters all throughout the, all throughout Europe. There was the issue of the Inquisition, that there were uh, a lot of abuses there. You maybe have read about that. There was transubstantiation, which was almost like a magical reenactment of the crucifixion of Christ every time they had the Mass. There was the issue of the infallibility of the Pope and the issue of putting tradition on the level with Scripture. That's how it ended up getting this far. Now, I have a shirt on here, and I want you to notice the way this shirt is. And I, I thought, well, I, I had it folded. I don't know if you can tell. it. It's not... It's not iron, can you tell? <laughs> I'm not real good at that. I mean, I look at it and say, well, it actually looks pretty good now. But, but I want you to notice, it, when you think about how that shirt was originally made, there weren't those wrinkles there. How did those wrinkles get there? Well, we folded this shirt up, and I took it in my suitcase down to Nicaragua last week, and it was folded up in my suitcase the whole time because I never got around to using it. And I brought it back, and I put it on today. And so I, I have deformed my shirt. It's got wrinkles in it. And so, to, to reform my shirt, I'd have to iron it. Th- th- these wrinkles are in there because of tradition. It was folded a certain way for a long period of time, and then when you open it back up, you're wrinkled. Well, the church got wrinkled. Because uh, any time you do a certain thing a certain way for a certain amount of time, then it ends up being, well, that's just the way we do it. Take, for example, confession. Uh, one of the issues with confession that's a challenge is that a lot of times uh, you and I confess our sins, but we still feel bad about it. You know, some, some sins you confess, and you dealt with it, and then you went to church, and you took communion or whatever, and you, you're over it. But there are other sins that ten years later, you're still kicking yourself, and you've asked the Lord to forgive you, and you don't feel forgiven. And, uh, well, it's always been that way. There are just some sins that are harder to feel like you're over and feel like you're forgiven. And so the church uh, established a system of confession where you would go and talk to the priest, tell him what you'd done, and he would maybe give you some things to do that would express your sorrow, like uh, pray the Lord's Prayer a couple of times and these other things. And then he would announce you forgiven, using the words of the scripture, you know, you're, you're forgiven. And it's like hearing it from somebody else who's an official in the church. It's like, uh, I now I feel forgiven they and doing that it, it would start out just as a good idea and a helpful thing for people and I mean if you have got to confess your sins to somebody in a small-town environment how many of you have ever been in a small- town environment it's pretty rough isn't it I mean you don't want every bad thing you do to get around to everybody do you and so you if, if you're gonna confess your sins to somebody and particularly the ones that you never feel forgiven of in other words the really really bad ones the embarrassing ones uh, If you've got to tell somebody, you want to pick the right somebody. And so the priest was somebody who supposedly dedicated his life to God, and and in a small-town situation, I mean, he may not be a great guy, but he may be, amongst everybody, the better one. So it made sense to, in a private place, confess it to, to the priest so that he could then pronounce over you forgiveness. But what's the problem with that? It doesn't come from the Bible to say that you have to do it that way. Uh, But that was one of the wrinkles that came and then became uh, more and more uh, established as a law. So they, they elevated tradition to the level of Scripture. So just the fact that we've done it that way for a while, it's now the right way to do it. Everybody has to do it that way. And if you don't do it that way, we kick you out of the church. And if you're outside the church, it's for sure you're going to hell. So the church had gotten very, very... Uh, Deformed. Deformed in the sense of straying from the the original way that the Bible said how the church should be. So when the Reformation began, the main thing that they were looking to accomplish was to reform the church, to go back and look at what does just the Bible say? If we iron out the wrinkles, what's the shirt supposed to look like? If we iron out the wrinkles of tradition, it doesn't matter if they're good or bad traditions, it's tradition says, so if, we, if we strip it down to what, just what does God say in the Scripture, what will the church look like? Now, some went so zealously about it that they would go into Catholic churches and smash everything. You know, all the images and artwork and stained glass windows and, you know, no images. But it was with that desire to get things back to the way that the, the Scripture had originally said. And you may remember some of these Funny sayings, funny because they're in Latin, and most people don't know Latin. Uh, sola fides, sola, I don't even know how to say it. Does anybody know how you say sola gracia? Gracia. Gracia, all right. I know uh, Spanish, but that doesn't help me here. <laughs> sola scriptura, soli deo gloria, and solo Christus. Sola fides means what? Faith. Only by faith. In other words, salvation is only by faith, it's not by any good works you can do. Sola gracia, what's that? only by grace. It's only by God's grace. It's not that you can, anything that you can earn or deserve. Sola Scriptura, only the Bible. It doesn't matter what the Pope said in the year 832. If he didn't get it out of the Bible, then we're just going to say the Pope said it. We're not going to say God said it. Soli Deo Gloria, only to God be the glory. Not to any, any person. We're not trying to follow, be the followers of a man. That's an interesting thing of Reformed faith. Lutheranism, see, comes from the name Luther. So, in a sense, it was following the teachings of Luther. But we call our faith the Reformed faith. We don't call it Calvinism, although it's got some, some of the teachings of Calvin in it. And part of that is because um, we're, following, we're trying to follow what does the Scripture say. And we know that nobody has 100% good insight. And so we don't... The Reformed faith doesn't put the name of a particular teacher on our faith, but uh, just calls it Reformed. Only to God be the glory, and solo Christus, only Christ can save. Uh, Not that the church can't save, the the sacraments can't save. And then the final thing I've got here is I have these two colored, that color for the Reformation. I've got these other two colored for revival. Now what do you think is the difference between Reformation and Revival? I'm referring to something specific in history. How many of you have heard of the First Great Awakening? Okay. How about the Second Great Awakening? Hard to have heard of the, first yeah. without the <laughs> Second without the First. Well, let me tell you a little bit about that. By the early 1700s, even though they'd done this great job of reforming and getting the Westminster Confession and all these great capturing the teaching of the Bible and stuff like that. By the early 1700s, with the scientific discoveries of Isaac Newton, Copernicus, Galileo, and all of that, people were beginning to be more critical and skeptical about supernatural origins of anything and thinking, well, maybe everything has a natural, explainable origin. And so even it was beginning to affect the schools of theology, so churches were becoming... More and more skeptical, intellectual, highbrow, less spiritual. And in the early 1700s in the United States, there was what was called the First Great Awakening. And this was a time when God just began to move in an amazing way in our country. They say that about 10% of the whole population of the United States that wasn't Christian became Christians in like a 10 year period. George Whitfield did a lot of preaching there. Another name is Jonathan, Jonathan Edwards. And George Whitfield would get to a place and people would have traveled hours to hear him, and there were thousands of people all over the place. Benjamin Franklin was so taken with George Whitfield that one time when he was speaking up in Philadelphia, Benjamin Franklin just, he was speaking up there, and there were all these people here, and he had such a booming voice. Uh, Benjamin Franklin thought, I wonder how many people he could he could speak to. So he start, just started walking backwards and got all the way down the street until he, where he could still barely hear Whitfield's voice and understand the message, and then calculated that that would be, you could fit 5,000 people in there. And that, there was just such a hunger for God. There were times when a minister would be preaching and uh, talking about the realities of the life to come, the realities of heaven and hell, and says, if, if you have not received Christ, you are like a spider dangling from just the slightest gossamer thread over the pit of hell. And it's any moment now that thread could break and you would fall forever into hell. And people would begin to moan and, and hold on to their seat like they were sliding down. And, but, but it was just the, the work of the Holy Spirit to make these things real to people and them to realize, uh, I'm really not right with God and I need to do something about that today. So these tremendous things were happening o- over this period of, of 10 to 20 years that's called the First Great Awakening, and it tremendously affected uh, the formation of our country. That's why a lot of the things about God are in the Constitution and the, and the Declaration of Independence is because a lot of people had recently become Christians in the First Great Awakening. Now, the Second Great Awakening was after we became a nation, right at the turn of the 1700s to the 1800s, start around 1790-something. They say the first 10 years after uh, we won the War of Independence that the United States had slid into a very low level. No, almost nobody was going to church, the taverns were full, people were there just a lot of of drunkenness and uh, it was just a very, very low level spiritually and God began to do a work again that's known as the Second Great Awakening and the Cane Ridge, Kentucky Revivals, where people would come from all over to this place and just camp out for a week and listen to preaching and sing and everything. And, and in the several universities, re- revival broke out as people turned their lives over to God. And, and a lot of missionaries came out of that uh, Second Great Awakening. So that's what we call revival. That's a long thing, but since it wasn't, it's not as familiar. And that's, that's another term. That's, uh, it, that's used and it's different from Reformation. Revival is different from Reformation. How do you think now it's different? Yeah, it, it, well, like with the cup illustration. Here it was the cup formed, deformed, reformed Reformation. With revival, the cup is filled. It's a, maybe a less tangible thing. It's not primarily a doctrinal thing. It's something that God is doing in the individual, as you said, Will, and, but really uh, in the people of God. They say that at one time when there was revival going on in the United States, that it was like uh, God hung like a cloud over the eastern United States, and that when ships would get within three or four miles even of, la- of landing, they hadn't even hit port yet, that the fear of God would fall on the ship, and as soon as they got to the dock, they'd say, Would you please send a minister? Everybody's weeping on board. Uh, So God just begins to move in a a strange way. There was a revival in 1850 or so, or 1849, uh, that started in New York with a businessman who thought, well, we really, you know, we really need reviving or something. And he thought, well, we should have a, let's just have a, a prayer meeting on Wednesdays and see who comes for lunch. Just meet, instead of eating lunch, we'll just meet for prayer. The first day, he was there all by himself for the first 30 minutes. And by the end of the hour, another six had joined him. The next week it was like 30, I don't know all the figures, but within a year it was hundreds. Within two years it was uh, in churches all over the city. Within three years it was in about 10 states. And it just swept the whole United States. They say that the revivals that swept through the Confederate Army in the Civil War, that something like a fourth to a third of all Confederate soldiers came to Christ during the Civil War. So it's just not church as as usual. It's really, really different. But revival isn't primarily a doctrinal reforming and coming back and studying the Scripture and figuring out what does the Bible really say. The point is is that even if you have all your doctrines great, you still may be, well, trying to find a softer word, (laughs) deflated, uh, not so excited. But yes. Uh, uh, and there are times when you just need, I mean, ha, don't we find that in our own lives? Uh, that uh, if you've been taught the scriptures, you, you can get to where you know a fair amount, but you can kind of get to a place where you're pretty deflated. Uh, you've heard that the, the, the Bible teaches that there's an abundant life, and whatever it is, you're not living it, and, and you know it and you just long for a fresh touch from God, and it's probably not going to be some huge, giant doctrinal change. But it's, it's, uh, look with me, if you would, uh, in Ezekiel 37, if you have your Bible. Ezekiel 37. I think it's a really neat picture, uh, really, of Reformation and revival. Ezekiel 37, it says, The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord. This is the prophet Ezekiel and set me down in the middle of the valley, and it was full of bones." So there's this big valley, and there are all these uh, human bones there. Now that, most people that kind of give the creeps. I mean, most people, even if you go to an elephant graveyard and see elephant bones, you know, you think, whew, you know, but what if it's all people bones? Mm-hmm. And he caused me to pass among them roundabout. So this is sort of like a cemetery, but they hadn't buried anybody. Roundabout, about, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and lo, they were very dry. Now this is the last state of decomposition of the human body before dust. This is the last state at which it's still recognizable that this had ever been somebody. Because all of the skin is gone, the hair is gone, the etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, and they, the bones have also, the things that held them together have, are gone. So it's just scattered bones and maybe birds of prey, etc., without getting too graphic, but, you know, have kind of scattered them around. And he, he walks around them, and then God asks him a question. He said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? It would be like going to a car junkyard where they've compacted all the cars, and they're all stacked up, you know. And someone's saying, Do you think anybody could put these cars back on the market as brand new cars? I mean, if they could just go in there and work with it, and repaint it and get it all so it would look, so somebody else would say, that's a new car. No, nope, no, nope, you should have seen it a couple of weeks ago. I said, no, it's a pretty, but this is even worse because most of the elements of the human body, they were gone. It wasn't as though they were, it was just a, like Legos that is in pieces and you just have to put it back together. It, it, it was just gone. Son of man, can these bones live? And he said, diplomatically, I answered, Oh Lord, God, you know. So that's neither a yes nor a no, but uh, I'm sure you know, Lord. <laughs> Again, he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O oh, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. So he says, I want you to speak to the bones, I want you to give them a message. Now, of course, bones have no ears and no brains connected to the no ears that they have, and uh, no eyes. And uh, he says, but God makes a promise. He says, I will cause my breath to enter, enter you that you may come to life. That's what he's supposed to say to the bones. I will put sinews on you, make flesh grow back on you, cover you with skin, put breath in you that you may come alive, and you will know that I'm the Lord. So I, he starts to preach. I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a noise. Now, whenever you're in a graveyard and you start hearing a strange noise, <laughs> It's not good. Um, And he said, I heard a noise. The word for noise there is uh, kol, which is the exact same Hebrew word for voice. And I've often wondered whether or not here it should be translated voice. Do you know that word kol is translated voice 285 times in the Old Testament and sound or noise only 95 times? So when he says, So I prophesied as I was commanded, and there was a noise. But it could also be translated, there was a voice. As, as my voice went out, another voice went out. Could be. That, that's our tr- what we count on when we teach or preach, because people don't need to hear another human message. They need a word from God. But God wants to speak through our words, and that as we have prayed and sought Him in the Scripture, our faith is that as we speak, He speaks, and things happen. So I prophesied there was a noise, behold, a rattling. Okay, the bone, bones are making a noise, the bones come together. You remember the song, the hip bone connected to that. <laughs> where do you think that song came from? This is where, I think, where that song comes from. <laughs> See, you knew more of the Bible than you thought. And came together, bone to its bone. So the bones start putting themselves back together. I think we'd have been a bit spooked right about then. And I looked and behold, sinews were on them. So muscles are starting to grow and it's just starting to happen as he preaches this message. And finally they're all put back together and skin's grown on them and I suppose hair and everything. And they're all lying there now it's just a, a valley of corpses. This isn't getting any better, you know. <laughs> Great! Uh, the Night of the Living Dead. uh, But he says, but there was no breath in them. So they're still just as dead as they were before. They're just more organized. And I think sometimes that's what happens with the church. We think if we can just get organized and get all of our stuff together, we'll be fine. But it's God's Spirit that breathes life into it. Just organization is not a true solution. So they're making progress, but they're still dead. And so he gives them another word. He says, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, Son of man, and say to the breath, or the Spirit, this is again the same word, breath and spirit, same word, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, or O spirit, and breathe on these slain that they come to life. And so he calls on the Spirit of God to breathe life into them. And verse 10 gives us our happy ending. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they came to life, and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Now, this story, this vision that he has, is a vision for the nation of Israel that, uh, again, had been formed and deformed, and this was saying God can do resurrection. There are two major works of God in making things. And the first is creation, where He makes things out of nothing, ex nihilo, as they say. And the second thing is resurrection, which really is, I don't know, they're both hard. They're both impossible, you know, <laughs> making something out of nothing. None of us can do that. But also none of us can take the, the dry bones of a, of a frog and make, and make a frog. We can't take a wrecked car and make a new car. And we ta- can't take somebody that's lived their whole life far away from God and they've got, they've got diseases, they've got addictions, they've got scars, they have crimes they've committed, they feel guilt. We can't take that person and make them like they were new. But God can He's the God, not only of creation, He's the God of resurrection. And so we need both, uh, in our own lives, uh, reformation, that's uh, where we need to keep, continually come back to the Scripture and say, but what does the Bible say? Because we can get kind of creative in our thoughts, you know, well, maybe this is okay, you know, but what does the Bible say? And that's, that's the aspect of Reformation, the Scripture, the Word of God, what He has told us from heaven, that's our blueprint, that's our DNA. He says, this is the way, walk in it, when you turn to the right or turn to the left. That's the Scripture, that's Reformation. But we also need revival, where God, by His Spirit, breathes on us and gets us going again, uh, full of love for Him, a heart of mercy for people, I had a wonderful time this past week. We were in Nicaragua, and we were with one of the most famous evangelists in Latin America. And apart from seeing him at the Crusades, which was really neat for three nights, it was so neat just to be with him at odd times. Uh, He had traveled all night long. He'd gotten up at 1 in the morning, flown, and 11, 12 hours later he lands in Managua, We uh, he has a TV interview there in the VIP room at the airport in Managua. We have a bumpy bus ride for two hours, bumpy because there are all these potholes and everything, and with a police escort with four. Uh, armed police with AK-47s on the back of a of a police pickup truck bouncing around, you know, and, and, and we, everybody's looking in this bus. Who is in this bus, you know? And, and uh, we're waving, and, and, and we get down to the port, and we get on this little launch, and because the, the main ferry boat had sunk to get to, to ride an hour or, and a bit across this choppy water, remind me of what the Sea of Galilee must have been like, and I turned several shades of green and just only barely missed having a terrible incident. And, and we finally get there, and it's 15 minutes before the crusade starts. And so uh, he gets up and preaches for an hour and prays for people for about two hours. Then we have a bumpy ride to the hotel that took an hour to drive to the hotel. We get there at 10 o'clock at night. He's been up almost 24 hours. We walk into the hotel, this hotel that we've been to so many times, and the owner comes out and says, uh, Pastor Anacondia, we're so delighted to have you here. And then he says, and I've been a very sinful man, and I've done a lot of bad things. And he begins to weep. Anaconda hadn't said anything. He just walked in. And Anaconda says, no, no, stop right there. He says, I want to tell you how much God loves you, and let me tell you what He's done for you in Jesus Christ. And he shared the gospel with him, and led him to Christ. We hadn't been there 10 minutes. <laughs> and uh, the Lord just works in so many different ways. But that kind of thing is, is revival. It's something special that God is doing. And it might be with an individual. It might be with a church. It might be with a nation. Sometimes it seems stronger than other times. We, I, I don't think anybody can figure it out. Though, Jesus said in John chapter 4, The wind blows where it wants to, and we hear the sound of it, but we don't know where it came from and where is it going. Uh, that's why some people uh, criticize churches that plan revivals. You know, we're going to have a revival in three months. Well, how do you know you're going to? I mean, you can, you can do your part, but that's not revival. Revival is what God does, and He does it when He wants to and where He wants to. As people cry out to Him, Lord, I need a fresh touch from You. So, uh, being down in Nicaragua gave me a, a fresh chance to be around the sense of, of God at work and revival, and it's a, it's a wonderful thing to, to trust that God's going to got new things for you. He's got more for you. I've got a quote from a, a wonderful Reformed pastor, Martin Lloyd-Jones. Has anyone heard of him? Martin Lloyd-Jones, Reformed. Dear Reformed Pastor said revival is just a touch of his glory, a fleeting glimpse of what he is in and of himself. And I want to emphasize this because you and I must come to realize that these these things are possible and that these things are meant for us. We were never meant to be content with a little. I can read that last a little bit again. We need to realize that these things are possible and that these things are meant for us. We were never meant to be content with a little. In Argentina, they had like 10 years of revival in the 1980s. And the church that we were in had been 50 members for 50 years. In just two months with this crusade, it grew to 400. That's by a factor of about eight. So if we're a church of, say, a thousand, to use a small number, that means, what if we, in two months, we're 8,000? You do the math on the nursery, on all the different areas of the church. And in the case of Argentina, it wasn't the upper middle class coming to Christ. It was uh, the poor, the drug addicts, the prostitutes, the thieves. Several people that had come to murder the evangelist, giving, turning in their gun, now they're coming to your church. I mean, it was wonderful and overwhelming. Absolutely overwhelming. But that's, God sometimes does special things. Uh, and that's at the level of a church or country, but it can happen at the level of an individual. And to begin to believe God for more in your life and in my life, because sometimes we get to a place where we're sort of flatlined, you know, we think, well, maybe this is just as good as it gets. Maybe, you know, other people are good at this stuff, the Christian life and stuff. And I, I've tried, not, you know, they say, you know, you read, you read your Bible, but I'm, I'm kind of bored with the Bible, but I don't want to admit that to anybody. And, and I try to pray, but it doesn't seem like I can get the hang of the thing. And it may, maybe God, maybe I just need to get the pastor to pray for me because it's just not working for me. And if I'm getting enough trouble, I'll I'll pray because I can't think of anything else to do. But you know, it's not a very satisfying thing. And they say you're supposed to talk about Christ with other people, but I I don't know. I don't seem to be able to convince anybody. And so you just think, well, maybe that's, man. I I thought it was going to be better than this, but this is this is just maybe this is just how it is. And so now maybe for the rest of my life, the main thing I need to concentrate on is just not getting any worse. You know, just kind of hold the fort, you know, till Jesus comes and, and try not to rot any more than I already have. It's sort of like, you know, with leftovers. You can't make them better, but you can put them in the refrigerator and maybe have them hang in there a little longer. And, uh, but I think we should believe God that our best days walking with Him are still ahead of us, that God has more for you and He has more for me. And He said, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. He's the God who said, open your mouth wide and I will fill it. Do you want more of him? I sure do. I want to finish with a bang. And I know he's the only one able to do that in me. Before we, we have uh, three more minutes and I just want to talk about a couple of terms other terms. Our main term tonight was "reformed," and I hope you now could explain what does "reformed" mean, at least according to Henry. The other terms are uh, the term "Protestant." The term "Protestant" that comes from a historical event when the Catholic Church, right there at the beginning, after Luther, you know, nailed his things on the door, and the Catholic Church says, "Well, I don't know about this," and they kind of went back and forth. And then in 1829 at the Diet of Speyer, and I just was in Speyer this past month, so I'm, I'm really into Speyer now, the uh, Holy Roman Emperor met with the princes of Germany, and, the, and uh, the Catholics had kind of done their work as far as lobbying, and the vote went against Luther and says, well, okay, we've got to just stomp it all out, we need to murder, kill, kill Luther, not murder, not, of course not murder, we need to kill Luther and uh, burn all his books. And there were a a number of princes, maybe six, that registered a protest and say, we're not, we don't agree. And that's where the term Protestant comes from. And I stood there at the church there in Speyer, and there's the, in the front, in the foyer of the church is this big statue of Luther. And around him uh, on the walls, uh, there are six statues of the six princes that stood up to the whole Holy Roman Empire and says, we don't think you should condemn Luther. We think it should be studied some more. That's where the term Protestant comes from. The term Evangelical. Evangelical. Does anybody have an idea what what that meant back in the time of the Reformation? John, you got a thought there? That, that, these are things that you, you get at one point and then it kind of wanders off when you're not looking. Evangelical is uh, comes from the term gospel and it means it's, you're, you're, it's salvation by grace through faith alone. It's you know it's The sola gracia, sola fides, all of those things, only by faith, only by grace, are we saved. We're not saved by works. We're not saved because the church says so. We're saved because of our faith in Jesus Christ. So that's what the term evangelical means. And then we've looked at the term reformed. So we may not have anybody here next time. You know, talking on the reformed faith, I feel like I'm serving Brussels sprouts and they have lemon (laughs) pie next door. And even if you think I'm a good cook, Lemon pie is, still gonna, is a better bet, you know, as far as uh, flavors. But anyway, in the, in the coming weeks, we're going to look it up, Jeopardy. Anybody like the show Jeopardy? Okay. What's the deal on Jeopardy? How does it work? What do they give you? And what do you got to figure out? Okay. Well, our Reformed theology a lot of times is like Jeopardy. That's what the answer is. But what were the questions? <laughs> And so we want to take a look at that and go back and see, well, you know, because sometimes when you read our confessions and all those kind of things, you think, huh, I wouldn't have brought that up. And there are other things they don't bring up. And how come they go about it and make such a big deal about this? They don't mention other things. And it's like, it's jeopardy. You know, you, you got the answer. Now make it a game. You got to figure out, well, what was the question? And you can find that out by taking a look at some of the historical things. And then that's the first. So the first four weeks we're going to kind of look about, look, look at, but what's, what's the big idea? Uh, I almost titled this instead of the title of Lightning in the Fog. I almost entitled it. So what does it mean and why does it matter anyway? So the first four weeks, we're going to look at the heartbeat of Reformed Theology. The the last four weeks, we're going to look at some of the main hurdles, the the, the problems, people, that gristle on our theological approach. The things that, uh, if you took a survey of all the people that go through our New Members class or our uh, Visitors and Inquirers class, Those are the things that they're thinking, I'm fine on everything, but... And we want to try and cover a couple of those. Not that I think we're going to put every doubt to rest, but, you know, why not talk about it, okay? Well, why don't we close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, apart from history, theology, studies, questions and answers, things you could write down in a book, you're mostly about writing, on the human heart, words of resurrection and life. And we want to praise you tonight that we have a future and a hope, that we have a light shining in a dark place, which is the Scripture. And we need to be continually reforming in the sense of going back to the Scripture and saying, but what did God say? And we need to continually be revived, that you, by the Holy Spirit, would uh, blow a fresh breeze over our lives and our bones would once again live, and that we would uh, enter into the joy of our Master even here on on earth. I pray that You'd uh, bless each person here tonight, and that they would go away with the prayer in their heart, Lord, I want more of You. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us on Bringing Truth to Life. If you like our content, please subscribe and give us a review. This helps more people find our podcast.